to be displayed on campuses. Conroe ISD trustee Melissa Duncan made the request, saying she had received numerous complaints from parents about different items displayed in classrooms. Proposed approved flags would include the American flag, Texas flag, school flags, and college pendants. Be a part of KPFT's Summer Sizzle Fund Drive now at 713-526-5738. Become a sustaining member to pick up our latest t-shirt and help us achieve our goal to raise $75,000 this month. Thanks for your support and for listening to 90.1 KPFT Houston. This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. Growing Up in America here on 90.1 KPFD Pacifica Radio. As every week on this time, we have a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and community in Houston do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the Voices of Texas Children. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative actions on behalf of Texas youth. Every week we aim to fill these same 60 minutes with a lively discussion of the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for our children. Of course, we always have regular segments like Thumbs Up and Thumbs Down, Day of the Day, which uh, this week is our teaser number at 37%. With me joining me today is Becky Quintanilla. Becky, who are our guests for today? Uh, Well, today we have uh, Dr. Daphne Hernandez. She is an associate professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center. Um, here in Houston. And then next we have Erin McDaniel. She's an academic performance coach um, for Texas A-plus Challenge, which is part of Children at Risk. Um, and Jamie, Dr. Jamie Freeney with Mental Health America. Emily Whitehurst from the Houston Area's Women's Center. And she is a president and CEO. Really, I, love, I love that organization. Uh, and so we are glad to have you with us as well. Uh, throughout the shows, we discuss issues as they affect children. And feel free to call in if you want to share your thoughts. Uh, so 37% is our data of the day. What are your thoughts on that, Becky? I'm going to say 37% of children are... Let's see, let's see. I always Being put on the spot gets me so stressed out, but um, I'm going to guess that 37% of Texas children are um, pass, uh, passing, um, like in math scores, a star passing. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of, that's where my head went as well. Uh, one thing that is in the news lately is the adjustment by the TEA of the cut scores for the STAR test in Texas. I don't know if everyone knows this, but every year from third grade and higher, we have some STAR testing, which is standardized testing across public schools. And then we have a pass-fail line, and we want kids to be uh, passing so they can be college and career ready. And if they're not, they would need uh, extra work to hit those targets. But the targets are not always the same, and yeah. the teachers don't start the year knowing what those targets are. Yeah, and I do know those um, scores came out last week. They did. So I'm sure, I'm not sure if 37% is what that number is, but I'm sure a lot of teachers and school districts are focusing on those numbers. Absolutely. All right. um, let's head on to our thumbs up, thumbs down. Dime cómo hacemos Si tú me deseas Yo a ti también Hace rato te quiero comer ¿De qué vas a hacer? Así que ponme un dembow Que se no respeta All right, so thumbs up, thumbs down. So if you want to join in this conversation, you could go to our Instagram story at children at risk. Um, and the topic today, should schools serve chocolate milk? 
I love this segment, Becky, because I always have opinions and I don't always get a chance <laughs> to share them. So this is lovely. And I happen to have strong opinions on the chocolate milk. Uh, so I'm obviously pro, and that's not because I came from the dairy state of Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> or that I drink milk as an adult. Uh, all of those are just side side issues. But uh, I think milk is good for you. I personally drink it for my after-workout recovery drink. Um, and chocolate milk is a great way uh, to get that protein and energy and a little bit of sugar in the middle of the day. Calcium is great for bones, and I don't think a lot of our kids are getting uh, the vitamins and healthy food that they need. So if a little bit of chocolate is what it takes to get those good ingredients to our growing kids, I feel like that's a small price to pay. You know what? I When I was a kid and I was in school, I would always go for the regular white milk. You know, whole milk is – that might be an unpopular opinion – um, but I feel like the chocolate milk was a little too sugary for me, which is weird because I'm, I'm a sugar over like salty person, but I mean, so I am thumbs down for this. Um, some of the other cons that also go into this is the presence of chocolate flavoring can mask the perception of sugar content. So this might lead to children over like over consuming sugar. Um, and they might think it's a healthier choice when, if they're over-consuming sugar, it's right. too much of a good thing to it's be disguise. a bad thing. It's yeah. disguised. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the dietary habits, um, regular consumption of sugary beverages like chocolate milk may reinforce unhealthy dietary habits and preferences for sweet foods. And maybe I'm the... I feel like I was the only one drinking white milk at school, so I was always, like, uncool there. But, I mean, I'm still... I'm not going to say I was cool, but... Um, that definitely did not make me cooler. Right, 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 right. So do you think that chocolate milk should be outlawed at school? Because we have other dietary requirements for kids' lunches. Like, for example, like um, minimum nutritional requirements. And yes, yes. Should that be included in there? Should it be no chocolate milk? I'm, I'm going to say no. I just, I think if you're drinking milk with your food, it's not always like the best, you know, you're making giving out water or some other type of juice that does have vitamin D. But I, I, I don't want to bring in TV shows into this, but if you watch Abbott Elementary, they change the juice to have more vitamins in it, and then it causes, like, the kids to go to the restroom more often. So there's, like, I'm sure there's a whole bunch Un- of, Unintended like, consequences. Yeah, I'm sure there's more that goes into um, lunch, kids' lunch. Um, so I don't want it to be, like, let's ban chocolate milk and then have very bad consequences so um but i still am thumbs down i, I hear i hear what you're saying uh, i'm gonna be the fun mom on this one and i'm gonna say yes to chocolate milk i guess i'm well good to get you're, the strict, you're the strict mom <laughs> yeah um all right um i think we are ready to move on for our first guest of today Okay, today we have Dr. Daphne Hernandez joining us. She's an associate professor in the Department of Research in the School of Nursing at UT Health Houston. Dr. Dr. Hernandez, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And then today uh, we wanted to talk about the barriers to physical activity and summer weight gain among Latino children. Um, I identify as Latina, so I've definitely been in that summer position where, I mean, I'm just at home and my mom's cooking is delicious, so I'm, I'm going to keep eating, you know, and then it's also hot. Um, there's a lot of, well, growing up, I didn't have that park next to me. Um, so, Dr. Daphne, can you tell me more about this issue and um, what you've found? Sure. Um, so we know that Hispanic children have the highest rates of obesity compared to their white peers. So 20 26% of our Hispanic children are overweight or obese compared to 14% of, of their white peers. And this is, of course, concerning because obesity leads to chronic diseases that are associated with mortality, such as cancer and heart disease, stroke, diabetes. Um, but one of the things that leads 
to obesity is inactivity. And and just as you were saying, um, the lack of access to parks is is one of the factors. Um, Having unsafe streets where um, there's always high-speed traffic, there's no sidewalks. Um, But we also have learned that there is a specific time period as well within the year that is associated with an increase in weight, and, and that is the summer period. Now, I know a lot of people would say that it's because it's really hot in Texas, but they have found, you know, other researchers at other universities have found that summer is critical um, in states like Minnesota and Wyoming, where it's much, much cooler than the 100-degree weather that we have been experiencing. And part of what's so delicate about the summer is the change in schedules. So during the school year, it is very structured. There are programs, there are activities, um, you know, there are school-based weight management programs that are not seen during the summer months. Um, You know, there's more, you guys were just talking about uh, chocolate milk. There's uh, particular guidelines in terms of what is being served at, um, during lunch. And so even that structure, whether you choose to have chocolate or not chocolate milk, there, the, the meals usually during lunch are healthier than what is consumed during the summer months. Um, and so the, the timing of all of this is, is really critical to children's development. Well, I'm glad you said that because I grew up in Wisconsin and I always gained as a kid my weight in January because we were inside all of the time. Um, And I guess maybe that's the sedentary times. But you're saying the studies show that even in cooler climates, the summer really is, and I suppose this, I will have to say uh, that when my experience was before video games and cable television and cell phones, so there was nothing for us to do uh, in the summer. So even we were just outside all the time. Um, but you're saying it is the summer, the inactivity, the non-structure, maybe like kids at home without with while their parents are working, that is the biggest impact. And and related to that, I mean, I think um, one of the things that has been a constant even before video games is sleep. So we're finding that children have, during the summer, because of the lack of structure, um, have le- later sleep period, later sleep timing. So they go to sleep later, but their overall sleep duration is the same. So they're not sleeping necessarily later. They're um, sleeping around the same duration as they would. They would get up around the same time. And so that really uh, affects their circadian rhythm. Their circadian uh, becomes misaligned, and that influences their internal um, workings and it contributes to weight gain and so overall it, it comes down to this structure in term ter- or lack of structure that um, in terms of diet and sleep that occurs during the summer compared to the school year and dr. Hernandez um, I know we're focusing on Latino children is there any mm-hmm. um, reason to why it is so much higher again compared to other races, or is there similar trends with um, white or black um, children? So there is similar trends. Um, the work that I have done has probably focused on low-income elementary and middle school age children who happen to be Hispanic. So most, most of my work has focused um, in, in that area. Um, and so, you know, these children do not have the resources that their higher income children have. And so their parents cannot uh, sometimes impose that structure, right? So uh, more influent families are able to pay for those summer camps where they are active uh, throughout the day. Um, And so while the trend is not particular to Hispanic children, it it is seen more among lower income because the lack of resources, the time and the money that is devoted to more fluent children um, in terms of being active during the summer. Okay, so this is really uh, shifting my paradigm. So for so many parents, (laughs) the school year is so busy 
rushing here, kids yeah. at different schools, drop off, pick off, all that stuff that some are really, I think, for parents as well, is a break. Okay, we don't have to do that. Maybe you're not going to like nag the kids so much to like get rolling. Maybe they're going to be at an aunt's house or grandma's house and stuff like that. And we all, we, hopefully we all have had the experience of grandmothers <laughs> taking good care of us and, and, uh, and feeding us the sweets and stuff. Uh, that we don't normally get at home. So, uh, but that can't be the case, right? You're saying like that will have long-term negative effects on the kids. So what do, what do parents do? How can we have the structure in the summer without uh, the resources or the school boundaries that we normally have? Well, there's a couple of things, of course, you know, um, you know, indulgence, some indulgence is still good, but, um, importance of prioritizing play and physical activity, right? I mean, and I think that is a challenge, definitely. Um, you know, while this, these findings are not particular to Texas, I think the findings might be a little bit, or the solutions might be a little bit more challenging in Houston, where it's so hot, and to prioritize play and physical activity. So trying to find a, uh indoor facility where kids can run around, right? And educating parents where they can find the summer food service program that provides their children meals. Uh, YMCA's uh, are good locations. Um, boys and girls clubs. You know, yes. yeah, boys and girls clubs. Anything that can sort of maintain a similar routine. It doesn't have to be exactly, but, you know, really maintain it, try to maintain, you know, within the 30-minute boundary uh, when they're going to sleep, um, try to uh, try to have uh, you know you don't want to do the same diet because there's there's things that you do on summer vacation that you don't do other times, but you definitely want to try to uh, mimic some of the behaviors that are occurring during the school year to to curb off that weight gain. So balance. Yes. Uh, relax a little bit, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then also don't forget to move, and it could be fun moving. You know, it's not going to be PE in class, but you could like run around. Yeah, and I I love yeah. how the idea of like um, of summer retention like, to prevent learning loss. Like, there's also so much that goes in yeah. when a kid is not in school, um, just to prevent or to keep them healthy. You know, um, as you mentioned, like to prevent that summer weight gain that might make them obese, or because there are high rates again. In Latino children. Um, so I'm happy to know this. Um, good information. Gretchen, do you have any questions? Last no, question? Up no, here? but I, w- I would just uh, maybe next time we get on the air, we can talk about the benefits of an extended school year so that we're not having three months of um, inactivity, but maybe space it out more so we don't get into those bad habits. Yeah. Again, I, I always yeah. have a progressive agenda. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Daphne. Um, Really, really good, good information shared. Um, especially again as a Latina woman, I love learning about this. Um, it's it's nice to know that there's some issues at hand and then that they're being addressed. Um, well, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. Cause if you dare, you see the glare of everyone you burn just to get there. It's coming back around. And I keep my side of the street clean. You Uh, now we have Aaron McDaniel, who is one of the academic performance coaches at Children at Risk, part of the Te- Texas A Plus Challenge. Aaron has been a teacher, and now she is teaching teachers. And she's going to talk to us about the importance of teachers of color in the classroom and in schools. Aaron, good to have you. Hi, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, I definitely, whenever I was uh, looking at the topic and just kind of thinking of what to say, um, I definitely feel that teachers of color are important because as students of color, you want to have somebody that you can relate to. You want to have somebody that you can look at and you can feel like you have similar experiences to, which overall affect your educational experience also. 
Can you unpack that a little bit? I was taught by nuns and I definitely didn't feel like I wanted to be a nun. Um, so does that why I had such a difficult time when I was younger? Do you think it would have been easier if I had someone inspirational? <laughs> Absolutely. Like if you think about your friends and the people that you actually learn from, they're typically people that you can relate to. It's the same thing with teaching and learning. Like whenever you can relate to somebody and you can relate to, you know, your educators, then you're more likely to pull information from that and actually to have a better experience. So absolutely. Uh, sorry. You know, Erin, um, we had an equity report go out this year um, with children at risk, and it says Texas has um, 72% of their students are of color and only 41.4% of teachers are of color. Um, do you know why there's that difference or there's not like a more um, even ratio for students of color? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but what I will say is that I know that teachers of color are the teachers that oftentimes leave the profession or don't stay as long. And oftentimes that can be due to, um, you know, the pay. They may have to go somewhere else so they can um, pay for things for their families. And another thing that they, or another reason why they also may leave is, um, just for the different the different treatment that they may receive or the lack of support, um, that's a better way to say that. And would, so I would, think that that has a huge thing with that. Would teachers of color need different supports than uh, other teachers, perhaps? I don't think they necessarily need different support, but I think just support in general. Um, imagine going to a workplace and you're just basically kind of thrown into the wolves and, you know, with educate education you want to make sure that you put your best foot forward every single day because that's, those are somebody's children that you're you know literally spending most of their time and most of your time with so you want to really make sure that you have the proper support in that field and oftentimes it you know it doesn't always happen that way yeah i i can well, i i can ex say with experience that um having a teacher that looked like me was very, very supportive. They tend to push me harder. They t tend to take me more seriously than other teachers might have. Um, as a student, I appreciated that. How do teachers go on about like when they see, when they have students of color and is there a different way to approach them? Or I don't know if there is a case. Um, I was the I've always been the student in that case. Um, but as a teacher, how do teachers approach um, students of color? I think, well, for me and my experience, it's definitely just letting the kids know, like, you know, when you think of um, back whenever all students weren't allowed into certain classrooms, um, as a teacher now in this day, like, that wasn't that long ago. So really reminding their students, like, we're here for a reason, and we should be here, and we deserve to be here, and we deserve to get this equal, you know, education, this equal opportunity um, that we haven't always been afforded. So I think it's just kind of, you know, letting them know, like, we're here for a reason, and we're going to make sure that we take advantage of this, and we're going to make sure that we can be the best um, version of ourselves. I love that. That's taking um, a situation um, and not saying, you know, you have to be here because, but you have the, uh, it's an opportunity for you to be here. It is, you know, it's a good thing to be here. So I love that how you're changing that the way to look at it. So you are, uh, you were in the classroom. Can you talk about, um, what you found to be um, positive about being a teacher of color who maybe is also teaching students of color? What, what, was, what was good for you about that? The good thing for me was that I got to teach um, all kinds of students of color. And in the district that I actually taught in, that was, that was the majority. Um, so I felt like a lot of our experiences, we can relate to each other on certain things. Even if things were going on in the media, we can talk about them. And we can, we, it's like we felt at home speaking about things. And it was like a safe haven, um, which we know, like, for students, like, in order for them to want to learn, like, one of the things that they need is safety. So that was definitely um, a positive experience that I had. In my reading, um, I've noticed that, or the comments from the kids were it's sometimes easier like to talk to teachers of a similar background because you can kind of shortcut the conversation. Because if you're talking to someone mm -hmm. who might not be familiar with your experiences, your culture, you have to be like, okay, here's this thing, and this is why we do this, and then there's this whole thing, and then the teacher is caught up on that, whereas you might be able just to have a shorter conversation. I need help because of this, or my family can't do this, and you're like, okay, I got it. I'm here to help and support. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like that definitely ties back into the, it's just a safe place. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I can, I don't have to give all that backstory. I can literally just say a couple of things and they're going to understand what I'm talking that's right. And this goes back to your original comment, which is if you are in a safe place, you can learn easier and faster. Um, I will also say, I know we started doing this here at Children at Risk, where um, we discussed the importance of like just big issue areas in the news. And I know you mentioned that, like even just addressing them in the classroom or even at work, um, it makes an impact because it's it shows that you're seen. Um how do you, like as a teacher, and it's a heavy topic that's on the news, how do you address um, big issues like that in the classroom that are affecting people of color? Definitely um, listening to the students. I feel like that's probably the biggest thing because everybody wants to be heard. And at that point, as an educator, I feel like the biggest thing you can do is allow that platform for your students but also to be somewhat of that mediator and to also be the person to kind of bring it back for them. So, you know, it doesn't go too far left, Um, but just allowing them to express the way that they feel and let them know that they're not alone in the way that they feel, especially if it's something negative. Um, And it's okay to have those feelings, but providing them with guidance on how to um, navigate through that. Because Children at Risk is uh, an organization devoted to um, action and systemic improvement for kids and families, I always like to end on possible action steps. So, Erin, if you were queen for a day and you were able to change um, this, the dynamic, what was one thing that you would like to see different either in a, on a campus level, in a district level, or just you know, society-wise to try and get more teachers of color in classrooms with students of color? Um, the first thing that comes to my mind, what is something that I would change? Um, definitely just the support for our educators, um, our, our, our educators of color, to make sure that they're going into a position where they feel supported and they feel comfortable and they feel like they can thrive in that environment um, and they can just do well. And uh, excuse me, you did ask about the educators, not necessarily the students, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. And then, yeah. and also, just making it making the experience equitable. Okay. It, yeah. Exactly. Um, I also I just wanted to point out um, because again in that equity report we had um, that uh, close to five percent of Texas schools have no teachers of color. Um, is there any way we can combat that, or um, do you have do you think there is a reason why there's um, those schools that have no teachers of color? Um, that is a really, really good question. Yeah, I'm, and I'm I not, personally am in flummoxed. I'm, I was surprised that's even possible. Or can you, right, like, right. some of the issues that might be at hand because of that? Um, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Um, that's a, definitely an interesting fact. I know I've read about that in other states. Um, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised for that in Texas. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. It, I wonder if it has anything to do with just like the recruiting um, and ensuring that they are uh, having more diversity within the school, if that makes sense as far as like the professional um, personnel. That's right, the outreach. So, well, that's, that's on our to-do list now, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Erin McDaniel, who is an academic performance coach with Texas A Plus Challenge, part of Children at Risk. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. Bye. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart of Texas, the rabbits rush around the brush. Deep in the heart of Texas. Well, we have a surprise guest today, um, our very own uh, President and CEO, Dr. Bob Sanborn. Dr. Bob, you're usually on the other side of the mic, but you're calling in today. What have you been up to this afternoon? You know... It's always exciting to be on this side of the mic and to be able to do a live report. So I'm, 
I uh, just was at City Hall where we had a big press conference. Uh, the mayor was there. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, uh, State Representative Sinfroni Thompson, Councilmember Tiffany Thomas. It was a whole uh, cast of uh, powerful characters. And we had people from Uber there to announce a new partnership with uh, Uber and Children at Risk. But more importantly, a new piece of legislation in the fight against human trafficking. Uh, Gretchen, Becky, I know that you guys know that all of us need to be on the front lines of the fight against human trafficking. And what we're doing is we're this new piece of legislation will allow us to begin training of Uber drivers. And this is uh, Uber, Lyft, any rideshare drivers. And Uber was very supportive of this. But training them so that they can spot victims of human trafficking or others uh, that are being in the middle of sort of a trafficking situation that might be using one of the rideshare companies. And, uh, you know, we live in a day and age, right, where people are using rideshare uh, left and right for legal and apparently for illegal purposes. And so this allows drivers to sort of be part of this fight against human trafficking. Well, that's great news because a driver picks up a person. They say, are you Dr. Sanborn? You say yes, and you hop in. He's not saying, you know, <laughs> to, to what purpose that's are you it. getting this ride? So how can this help uh, anti-traffic, anti-human trafficking yeah. efforts? Well, there have been instances around the country where uh, a driver became suspicious of someone who might have been trafficked, maybe someone who looks a little young to be going, maybe someone who looks young and who's sort of dressed up provocatively and they're dropping them off at some sort of motel. You know, as a driver, uh, you sort of pick up on these little things that might be going on. Uh, you know, they're, they seemingly under the control of someone who doesn't seem like a parent. And uh, drivers just need to learn that, hey, they could call in. And we've seen these instances right around the country where they call in and the police are part of the sort of partnership and will stop, will help stop the car and sort of figure out what's going on. And human trafficking is a peculiar area, right? I think a lot of times we think something's happening and it's not or something or we don't think something's happening and it is. And so we oftentimes don't know. And so law enforcement understands that, we want to err on the side of let's over-report on this one because we want to make sure that kids uh, are not being trafficked uh, for sexual purposes or for sexual exploitation. And uh, Texas has been pretty good at fighting trafficking, and so this is sort of another tool in the belt of those of us that would fight trafficking. I was also able to dispel a few of the myths in the press conference around trafficking and um, so uh, it was. It was a good. It was good to see a lot of our city mothers and fathers uh, as a part of it. <laughs> oh well, I do know that this uh, legislative session was hectic, but I know that this bill was one of like the easy go to goes. Or um, I know that it's going to cause good change, and I'm really happy that um, we were able to pass it. Um, thank you, Dr. Ball, for yeah. joining us. I know it was a good surprise. You're but- our cub reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Always happy to be the cover reporter. You guys are doing a great job, and uh, I'll see you next time. All right. We'll see you you. later, Dr. Bob. With us right now is our data of the day with Layla Mazzali. Um, she is a director of Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation with Children at Risk. Hi, Layla. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Layla, you've been doing data of the day for a while, and this is also with your day job of running the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. At what point do we call you a data wizard? When do you achieve? <laughs> I feel like it's pretty close. I mean, I'll take it any time. I think she's earned that spot already. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moving to high wizard. Okay. All right. So 37% is our number of the day. Uh, Becky and I, our brains both went to testing, which I guess is in a way kind of sad that all, even you and I are not in school and we are still obsessed <laughs> with uh, standardized testing and scores and stuff like that. Um, but Layla, tell what, what is the 
So 37%. Um, in 2021, the CDC found that 37% of high school students reported experiencing poor mental health during the pandemic. And 44% reported that they felt persistently sad or hopeless. That is uh, discouraging, Darn. perhaps. <laughs> uh, so I don't, even, I'm, I don't even know where to go with this. What else can you tell us about this, this number? Well, I can tell you that while we largely attribute it to the pandemic, we know that even prior to the pandemic, teens were still reporting high levels of stress, a large source of which is academic, um, so something to be mindful of with kids going back to school. And then, you know, post-pandemic, obviously, COVID is still present, but we're no longer in a state of emergency. But, you know, mental health crises don't necessarily just go away. So kids are likely to still be experiencing these types of challenges. One of my favorite staff members at my kids' schools were always the nurses because obviously they help out when kids need them, but also they have such a great pulse on the student body. Uh, you know, people tell a nurse something that might they might not tell teachers or even their friends. And I asked them once, you know, what is the number one um, thing that you see kids for? I thought it would be food allergies or asthma or something. She said anxiety attacks. She said kids of all capabilities and all uh, demographics have anxiety and panic attacks like on the regular. And she said the, one of the best things the PTO could do was provide um, goldfish packs and small apple juices, because that's one of the best ways kids can calm down. She's like, I bring them in. I, we practice breathing. They have a little bit of snack. They have a little bit of apple juice. And then like, hopefully they can have that minute to come together. But that was like shocking to me. And, and so kind of like worrisome that our kids, no matter, you know, they're, they're not, you know, whatever it is, is that it's triggering them on a, you know, very regular basis in all kinds of kids, um, having panic attacks at all, at all ages. Um, and yeah, then, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead um, I was I just, just oh, sorry, we keep interrupting each other. Um, uh, Layla, you go ahead and say what you were going to say. Oh, I, I mean, I was just going to say, I think we underestimate, I mean, being a kid is really hard and, you know, kids have all kinds of mounting pressures at school, at home, socially, all of these different things to consider that I think a lot of times, you know, parents are quick to say, oh, you know, you, all you have to worry about is school or whatever else you have going on. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and so I think acknowledging that being a kid is already hard without even factoring in, you know, different different ways that kids are marginalized, um, you know, thinking about kids um, who are LGBTQ+, kids who are of color, and all of how, and how all of those different factors shape their environment at school and what that means for their academic stressors. I know that there's been a big push about, like, um, mental health and, like, acknowledging the facts and what it looks like. Um, do you think that also made of increase, um, like, diagnosing this, you know, because... I mean, I, I feel like when I was growing up, I didn't know what anxiety was. And then um, later on, I'm like, okay, this is what it looks like. Um, and I can say that I, like, I could go get help for this. Um, do you think that has also been an increase or contributes to the increase? Um, you know, maybe. I think it's interesting that 37% of high school students reported experiencing poor mental health, but then a greater percentage reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless. And I wonder if that difference in rates shows that kids are aware of certain feelings without necessarily knowing that they have a diagnosable condition. Um, so it, it would be interesting to learn more, but it's definitely possible. I think this is such an insight on generations as well, because so many parents and adults and even grandparents think back to, you know, high school and stuff like that. And it's, oh, it's such a great time. You're so lucky to be, you know, young. And, um, you know, this, that's the best time of your life. And I can think that that would be some, kind of discouraging yeah. if kids are like, I am dying right now. And this, it doesn't get any better. Um, but I think that's like a bridge sometimes where parents might be like, we'll just get over it. Or um, what do you have to worry about? So I like that we're making this a number that we can talk about. And that um, just the phrase, you know, sad or having bad feelings, um, that people can identify that. And then hopefully that's the first step into talking about it and getting, getting into a better place. Yeah, and definitely a good jumping off point for schools to recognize, you know, that they have, they have their work cut out for them and meeting kids where they are and um, helping them with both their academic and mental health struggles. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Leila. Um, always a pleasure to have you here um, with your data points. Thanks, y'all. Right. Welcome, everyone. This is Growing Up in America on KPFT. And whether you're in the car listening to us or at home streaming live, we give you a big hello and welcome you with us. Uh, thank you to Leila Mazzali, who was the director of Center for the Social Measurement Evaluation at Children at Risk. Next, we have Dr. Jamie Freeney, a uh, fan favorite here at Children at Risk. She's with Mental Health America. Dr. Freeney, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have to be here. Thanks for having me today. So today you've heard our uh, conversation with Layla about mental health of students um, and then teachers that factor. We talked to Aaron as well about the supports that teachers need. So um, there's so much excitement about the start of school, but there's also apparently a lot of anxiety. So how can uh, how can we support and learn about teacher and student mental health? Absolutely. So one of the things is um, that because of the COVID pandemic, we have been having conversations around mental illness. And so it's a little bit easier and it's less um, stigmatized, but we still have a ways to go. But because of that, we know that both educators and students have different struggles and are, are struggling with um, some of the lingering impacts of COVID and other contributing factors to stress. One of the things that Layla was saying as far as children being more in tune to um, how they're feeling, but they may not know exactly what the diagnosis is or that they could get a diagnosis, um, I think that's, that's crucial, and that's one of the reasons why I'm advocating for more engagement of young people and educating young people about mental illness and about stress in general and the importance of finding um, resources that are from your your reliable organizations, such as SAMHSA or um, the National Institutes of Medicine or the CDC. And so we've been encouraging young people to um, find factual information because they want to know. They want to know what the terms are. They want to know what it means and what it looks like. And so they're really engaged. And because of social media, they have access to that information. But it's really important that adults and advocates and parents and educators really guide them to the places that are going to give them factual information. With that said, I think it's also important for um, school administrators to um, create a culture of mental wellness, and that does start with making sure educators are taken care of. So, you know, making sure there's a, there are resources that they're, they're well-known, um, they're easily accessible, um, offering and talking about, you know, stressful days, coping skills, um, the importance of supporting each other. And one of the things that I've consistently read when it comes to um, educator burnout or educator mental wellness is um, having a place for them to talk about it without fear of consequences, without fear of retaliation or any of the other um, kind of common and, and valid um, reasons as to why often educators and school counselors don't share, they don't vent. But if we um, offer them a place um, of a space, a safe space of like-minded individuals where they can hear that there are others that are struggling like them or they can hear that there are others that are seeing some of the things that they're seeing in students, they could be encouraged and also be sharing strategies as well. Um, So uh, what you all have been talking about is, is, is right on point. Um, and then I'll also say with returning back to school, um, again, it's, it's, it's critical that we um, not only are you know, focused on the um, academic component, but that we understand that mentally well students perform better academically and they have better behavior and they get along with the teachers and their um, peers better. So it's really a foundational component that sets the trajectory for school performance, for um, behavior and socialization and, and all these other components that, that um, come out of a, someone or a child being mentally healthy. And that doesn't necessarily mean they won't experience trauma, but what it does mean is that when they do experience trauma or they do experience stress, 
they're more comfortable reaching out. It could be that school nurse that you're talking about that has such a great pulse on the school. It also could be a school counselor or just another teacher there that that student feels comfortable with. So um, building relationships and um, just ensuring that each child is seen and somebody knows their name um, will really go a long way in starting the year off um, well and, and you know, hope, hopefully um, continuing uh, to keep the excitement about the upcoming school year um, and just being optimistic about um, the support that we're going to offer each other as well as um, the, um, the resources that we have now to support the mental and emotional wellness of both our educators and children. You know, I'm really glad that you brought about uh, brought up the educational outcome piece um, because I know, I don't mean to throw HISD under the bus, but I know with the takeover, um, their main focus is educational outcomes. Um, but there is so much that intersects with those educational outcomes, including mental health. Um, mm mm-hmm. And wanting to shift the focus with wraparound services and how important they are to the schools, um, do you did you want to yes. speak on that as well? Absolutely. So, one of the other components of um, school mental health or just supporting young people with mental health is having connections to the community that already provide those services. We don't want teachers and counselors to feel like they have to be therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists. What we want them to do is be able to recognize those signs and then refer. And that could be referring to a community um, mental health provider. It could be referring them to um, their primary care physician. But it also could be referring them to other after-school programs that have really strong um, systems and supports set up to address the mental need, the mental um, and emotional needs of young people, such as your YMCAs, your Boys and Girls Clubs, um, NAMI. There are also um, institutions like NAMI and other mental uh, health providers that partner with schools and that will come to schools and hold um, certain support groups. It might be grief support groups or support groups for children who have parents who are incarcerated. Um, it could also be support groups for individuals in the LGBTQIA population that um, may be having some um, particular struggles. So uh, the com- community component is crucial um, because it's a uh, it's all about partnership. We, we don't want um, or expect schools to address mental health needs um, alone, and we know that that's not their first priority. Their first priority is learning and making sure children are in the classroom um, and able to do so. So we have um, a huge community component and a push for increased partnerships, increased data sharing, increased uh, or decreased um I guess, red tape to actually try to get some of these partnerships in place between campuses and local mental health providers, especially for our schools that are in rural areas who may not have a um, provider that's down the street or in the neighborhood or in the community that they could partner with. Um, They have to take advantage of programs such as T-Chat, which allows them to connect with a, a child that's in crisis with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and then they can follow up with their primary care physician. So that community important, that community component um, is crucial. I think uh, communities and schools provides a really great model that has been effective. Um, and so that, of course, is part of that wraparound service. That's part of that um, addressing, looking at the whole family, the whole child, and making sure that the other needs um, in that, that family or for that child are met so that when they do come into the school, their priority can be on learning. Dr. Freeney, I've always we've always said at Children at Risk, hungry kids can't learn, but I feel like we need to expand that and say stressed kids can't learn either. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. When I you know, when I'm stressed out I lose my car keys. I can't imagine trying to also have to learn the yeah. times tables for grade promotion. So I think that's a great way to talk about it, which is, you know, stress kids can't learn, stress teachers can't teach. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's identify the feelings like, like Layla was talking about it. Let's talk about what we need. And what I also love is you're like, you know, that's not the teacher's job to solve. The teacher's job is to educate and, and have an learning environment. And then it's the community and the other groups to talk about it again and and get the kids Mm -hmm. the supports they need. Yes. And, and also we want to, um, Try to help shift or or 
change the perspective of students um, that are extremely stressed around grades and school performance, academic performance, um, because a lot of uh, students who are suffering from anxiety, um, it, it may not be something that's coming from home. It could just be the pressure, or it could be something coming from home as far as parental expectation of high achievement. Um, but I've been talking to young people, and there are um, pockets of, of youngsters that are starting to think about and identify themselves as their grade. Mm. And so we don't want students to say, oh, well, I'm a C student. I can only be a C student. I'm average. It's no, you're a student. You're brilliant. You're you. You just made a C in this particular grade. Or you That's just right. made a C on this test. And so it's, it's, it's removing the identification component um, so that they understand you don't have to be anxious. This is not going to be something that's going to make or break you. This is a, a, a scale that allows you to see either how well you're doing or where your areas of opportunities for growth are. So if we can change the conversation around that and around testing and all these other things that really stress kids out, then we could see a decrease um, in some of the, the signs of anxiety and depression, especially around March and May when it's time for testing or, or time for graduation or college applications and all that, that fun stuff. So really um, just making sure that we, as adults, don't forget how stressed we were during that time. And then, and then um, multiply and, it by yeah. 10, basically. <laughs> Dr. Free, right, as, exactly. as always, you are both reassuring and providing opportunities uh, for growth for all of us. Thank you for joining us today on Growing Up Thank in America. You. We look forward to having you again soon. Wonderful. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Our next guest, Emily Whitehurst, she is a the president and CEO of the Houston Area Women's Center Services. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So tell us about uh, the Houston Area Women's Center and what y'all do there. So the Houston Area Women's Center is the city's largest domestic violence and sexual assault center. We operate as the region's rape crisis center, and then we have a whole host of programs for survivors of domestic abuse, including um, a shelter, legal services, counseling and behavioral health programming, housing programs, and all of our services are free and confidential. All right. Um, and I wanted to um, talk about how do we empower kids and teens to just talk about this issue a bit more or um, for them to be aware of these issues that are at hand? Um, do you have any tips on how to go about that or how do your services go on about that? <laughs> well, I, I do think it's important for people to recognize that um, domestic violence and sexual assault affect children. Um, they are either the victims or witnesses and a a major focus of our work is um, how these uh, social challenges impact children. So we have a range of services for children. Certainly children live on our residential campus where we do targeted and uh, programming for them. Uh, and then we have counseling groups specifically designated for children and um a whole violence prevention department that does community education and outreach. And that's really where you'll see us working with uh, either key uh, adults who are influencers for youth or the young people themselves to facilitate conversations that, you know, they may not be having in their home or that might be really challenging or uncomfortable otherwise. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people sometimes don't want to discuss um, these issues with kids or teens. Um, what, what do you think? Uh, should you be discussing domestic violence with kids? Well, yes. I mean, I definitely think so. I think it. Um, I think it will depend on who you are in relationship to the child. Uh, but right. Right. Yes. Don't open, <laughs> that, open with that. Yeah. Yeah, but certainly um, making sure that if you're a trusted adult. Uh, within in a child's life, that there be um, a place to talk about 
what a healthy relationship looks like uh, and and where in their life there may be uh, instances where they don't feel safe or um, they feel coerced into a type of uh, activity that doesn't feel good to them. Uh, and we, we, you know, we see a lot of, um, a lot of challenging behavior showing up in children who may be living in homes where abuse is prevalent or who are in relationships that they are not disclosing, but that are, are really abusive to them. I think that's a, a great point right there, which is, um, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, you know what I mean? You might just think like, this is how everyone feels, which is miserable and scared. So what's, mm-hmm. what's a way to kind of like broach that subject or, you know, you know, if, if maybe if you're not that person to um, be able to intervene directly, but you can just bring up the fact that maybe not all relationships have to be like this, or there are other options, like how, like, where do you even start? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, th- I think there, I think there are multiple places to start. I think um, if you're working with a young person who is outcry, had an out, made some sort of an outcry, that's given some indication that something isn't right, either in their home or in a relationship. Now, that's a very different place to start the conversation than one in which you're really just trying to lay the groundwork for um, thoughtful reflection. Uh, and shared thoughtful reflection, ideally among teens themselves, about what a healthy relationship looks like and what types of relationships they're seeing modeled in their lives and what parts they like and what parts they don't. Um, so, the you know, there's a term that's called primary prevention, and those are the sort of interventions that are, you know, ideally would be taking place everywhere all the time so that we're not... Uh, in a situation where we're dealing with uh, an intervention, in in other words, once uh, some indication of abuse has already uh, been shared. Um, it's a really, uh, you know, my, my sense is that, that kids actually have a lot of thoughts and opinions. It's something they think a lot about. Uh, but creating that safe place to have that conversation with a trusted adult is the job of adults. And um, we, we need to be able to do, do that without bringing judgment, um, without any way reinforcing shame, and um, ideally in a way that um, allows us to uh, be deep listeners and thoughtful listeners in the event that there are things that uh, the children in our lives are not wanting to say but really do need to say. Um, and I also wanted to ask, um, can you give me more information about safety planning and what that oh, means? Oh, you bet. So we've launched a, a regional campaign around safety planning. And, you know, the, the, the place where that first starts is just recognizing right now that we're in uh, a moment of an alarming spike in violence. Uh, and that violence most definitely affects uh, teens and kids. Uh, the homicide rates for abuse are um, more, higher than they've been. Uh, they've doubled in the last three years. And, um, and that, that homicide is just the tip of, of a much uh, more tragic uh, phenomenon of abuse of all kinds. And so one of the main things that we do at our organization is work with people to create a personalized safety plan um, because... Uh, leaving a relationship, and this is true for a teen as well as for an adult, um, leaving a relationship can is typically the most dangerous time. So really thinking about what are the, what are the supports uh, that need to be in place if somebody is trying to, to extricate themselves from uh, an unsafe dynamic and how to make sure that if and when they do so, They've thought about the various components that could be um, contributing to higher risk for them. And we do this on our hotline. We have a 24-hour hotline for either domestic abuse or sexual abuse. And we also have a chat. And sometimes young people are more comfortable with chatting rather than calling. And so uh, we, we're really 
uh, happy that we have that feature on our website, which allows people to, all of these calls can be anonymous, of course, um, talk about what's happening, and then begin to get, uh, you know, our, our, our staff are trained uh, experts, and we, um, we know how to ass- assess the lethality of a situation. And sometimes in... Emily, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're almost out of time. So can, can okay, you share okay. those numbers? If someone uh, has a problem or is yeah. worried about the someone best, close to them, can you, you share the numbers?